0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Paloma Beltran. Tips for living longer that we can learn from other creatures.
2: Many humans live maybe between 70 and, and 90 years. But uh, if we look out into nature, you can find animals like lobsters that don't age physically. And then animals like this jellyfish that my book is named after, uh, which can rejuvenate itself so age backwards.
3: Also, don't look up as an allegory for climate change. Don't look up is what the forces of inaction, polluters and those promoting their agenda, politicians and front groups and conservative media outlets, they don't want us to look up. Something that's plainly evident. All we have to do is use our two eyes. Well, that's true with the climate crisis, isn't it? We're watching it play out in real time now. Those
0: stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Paloma Beltran. The 15th Conference of the Parties of the UN Biodiversity Treaty in Montreal, Canada late last year led to an agreement to address biodiversity loss, restoration of ecosystems, and protection of indigenous rights. Nations pledged at COP15 to protect 30% of the planet by the year 2030 and mobilize at least $200 billion a year in funding. They also agreed to send $30 billion a year from developed nations to the developing ones that contain most of the world's biodiversity.
0: Concerned scientists hope it won't be too little too late. Already, there has been a nearly 70% decline in the world's animal populations since 1970, according to a World Wildlife Fund study. Not only are the Amazon and Asian rainforests under threat, the Congo Basin in Central Africa is also a critical biodiversity hotspot and a linchpin in the fight against climate disruption. For more, I'm joined by Irene Wabiwa, She's an international project leader for Greenpeace Africa based in the Democratic Republic of Congo and attended COP15 in Montreal. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I want you to give us the big picture here. Why is biological diversity a global issue? In other words, why is there an international convention on it?
4: Yeah, that is a very <laughs> huge question, but a very good one. You know, the global biodiversity loss is at the heart of the planetary emergency, the planetary crisis that we are all facing now. As a climate change, the biodiversity crisis is also becoming a real threat to the planet. So to protect the important ecosystem and habitat, to preserve the natural environment that is key to our own well-being, the global community must take action now and collectively. And that's why the global biodiversity agreement is really, really necessary. The targets have been set in Montreal. We now need to quickly move from papers to the implementation, from speeches, from signature to action on the ground, including the mobilization of finance without the appropriate finance the biodiversity crisis that we are facing, that is changing our life day to day, will be there and will continue to struggle as we are struggling.
0: How do the financing commitments made in Montreal at the Biodiversity COP15 compare to the need?
4: The finance issue was one of the most tricky issues at the Montreal conversation. We should say that there is clearly a huge biodiversity finance gap. Estimates are suggesting up to 700 billion U.S. dollars annually that is needed to protect nature. But in Montreal, government has agreed to mobilize at least 200 billion U.S. dollars per year. You can see that is not enough.
0: Now, my understanding is that indigenous lands make up about 20% of the Earth's territory and have about 80% of the world's remaining biological diversity. To what extent can... Lands occupied by indigenous people be conserved without bringing indigenous peoples into the discussion, indeed giving them credit for their stewardship over all these uh, millennia.
4: We have so many examples, uh, unfortunately. And in the Congo Basin region, which is the second largest rainforest of the world, is a region that is composed by six countries. We could see many countries like uh, in Cameroon, in the Republic of Congo, where communities have been displaced from their land because the country has decided to create a national park. We have the example of Kauzi Biega National Park where indigenous people have been asked to move away very far from their traditional land because that land has become a national park. They were not consulted. They were not informed. They only saw conservationists coming to ask them to move because they need to protect that forest. And if this decision was taken to transform that land, that piece of land, into a national park. It's because those indigenous people have been protecting this land for many decades. Otherwise, they couldn't find anything. And instead of recognizing the effort of those communities and involve them in management, creation of national park, decision-making, they just moved them away. And that is not fair. No deal on biodiversity or nature protection can be successful if the rights of communities and indigenous people that are the best guardian of this ecosystem are not respected. We are happy that the deal in Montreal recognized the right of communities their free and prior consent to be respected, but we need to see those targets being implemented transformed into action decision on national level.
0: The Congo Basin, of course, is the world's second-largest tropical rainforest after the Amazon, and some would say it is the most intact tropical rainforest. Describe it for us, if you could. Talk about the plants and animals and people who can be found in the Congo Basin.
2: Uh,
4: the Congo Basin is really uh, it's, it's rich, it's beautiful, it's one of the most important wilderness area left on the, on the Earth, if not the intact area left on the Earth, as you were saying. It represents 70% of the African continent plant cover. So it's huge. It's rich. About 26% of the planet rainforest is lying in the Congo Basin. It has a lot of rivers, a lot of savannas. We have the biggest tropical peatland in the Congo Basin. It's also a home to large mammals such as gorillas, elephants, buffalo, many other species that you can only find in that region. We're talking about over 11,000 species of tropical plant and more than 1,200 species of birds, 700 species of fish. So it's an area that needs to be protected. It's the second lung of the planet. And if the coming Montreal deal need to be a reality, need to be successful, that means the Congo Basin as a region needs to be protected at any cost.
0: Now, as I understand it, the peatlands in the Congo, in Central Africa there, are the world's largest tropical peatlands complex I think there's some 16 million hectares there. That would be bigger than England and Wales combined. And they've been managed sustainably by local communities for hundreds of years. Now, according to scientists, they hold some 30 billion metric tons of of carbon. That's more emissions than the U.S. emits every year. What are some of the dangers facing the peatlands?
4: Exactly. The Congo Basin is the largest complex of tropical peatland in the world. And this very sensitive complex have been protected by communities again and indigenous people since its existence. And as you were saying, they store almost thirty billion tons of carbon, the equivalent of three years of global emissions from fossil fuel. But unfortunately, this peatland are facing some. Serious threat. Taking the the example of the DRC, where more than 19 billion tons of carbon are lying, the DRC government has decided to auction 27 oil blocks, including in the forest protected area and the same peatland. And according to the scientists, if these oil concessions are not stopped, more than one million hectares of those peatland will be impacted by the oil activities. And talking about forest, more than 11 million hectare of forest, that is huge, will be impacted. So if the the oil blocks are not stopped in the DRC, which is more than 60% of the Congo Basin rainforest, this huge environmental disaster will impact our humanity, our planet, and our life will never be the same. That's why we are calling the DRC government to stop its oil auction and preserve the future of the humanity.
0: Irene Wibaba is the international project leader for Greenpeace Africa. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
4: Thanks a lot, Steve.
1: Leopards are the only big cat species that live in rainforests as well as dry regions. And in either setting, young leopards may look like formidable hunters, but they still have a lot to learn. In the Masai Mara Savanna on the banks of the Olare Oroke River, Living on Earth's explorer and residence Mark Seth Lender tracked one young leopard's learning curve.
5: The cat in the spotted coat is awake. He stretches and rises and opens his mouth wide so the long canine teeth show. A comfortable yawn that ends with that little cat hiss in his breath as the jaws click shut all the while walking along the regular lip of the gorge. He sniffs the ground, eyes closed, and sees, displayed on the screen of his mind, things no human mind's eye has ever seen. Who and what came this way, and when, in the dimension of time, and by a lingering trace of sweat and the odor of the skin, how thirsty they were. Several paces further on he stops again, at a scuff mark in the dust, looking, taking note. Here that very same animal went into the ravine. Capt recalls the waterhole along the direction of the creature's travel. Ah, yes, a place to wait some hours from now as the darkness pours in. On he goes, all the while gaining in knowledge and experience. For this young leopard, there is still learning to do, and the growing up that goes with it. Now in a clump of long grass, he finds where one of his own kind has left their deliberate mark, which holds his full attention. Inhaling, like a sommelier high against the palate, he discerns terroir, the maker's finesse, and whether ready and good or not yet prime, and other things unimaginable to you. He licks his lips, he licks between his toes, then follows the slope to the bottom and across and up the other side, and pads along through the dried-out brush onto the flat of rust and plum-colored granite of the outcrop, and sits right in front of me. Cat in the spotted coat wraps his tail around his soft cat feet and looks about, lies down, rolls over on his back, yawns his big cat yawn and looks at me upside down, pat me, stroke my head, scratch behind my ears, rub my belly and I'll purr for you. Pay no attention to the equipment behind the curtain of my velvet black lips. Ignore the razor's called claws at the end of my paws. I only want... Cat in the spotted coat is suddenly transfixed. Blue wildebeest, two knots of three at less than a hundred yards, he stands and shrugs low and in that stealthy catwalk pours himself underneath my truck to watch, to plan his imagined sneak attack, tails swishing. While the blue wildebeest turn their heads and stare right back, The forward posture and their ready gaze making unmistakable reply. Who do you think you're kidding?
1: That's Living on Earth's explorer-in-residence, Mark Seth Lender.
0: Coming up, don't look up. We have a chat with climate scientist Michael Mann and his take on the Netflix movie Poking Fun at Climate Denial. That's just ahead on Living on Earth.
6: Here at Living on Earth, we work hard each and every week to bring you the most relevant and compelling environmental news. As a nonprofit organization, we count on you to help. Listener support is key to sustaining the environmental news gathering and reporting that you rely on. Please consider doing your part to support Living on Earth. A monthly donation is the very best way to ensure Eloise's work continues week after week. To make your pledge of support, go to loe.org and click donate. And thank you for helping to keep Loe's nonprofit environmental media going strong.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Paloma Beltran.
0: And I'm Steve Kerwood. The Netflix film Don't Look Up gave climate fiction a huge boost of star power when it was released on Christmas Eve 2021. It's headlined by Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Tyler Perry, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, and Ariana Grande. It's about a pair of scientists who discover a massive planet-killing comet hurtling towards Earth with just six months until impact. They try to sound the alarm to get a distracted world and self-serving people in power to do something about it. In this scene, they are explaining the severity of the situation to a skeptical president of the United States. Madam President, this comet is what we call a planet killer. That is correct.
6: hmm
2: So how certain is this?
0: There's 100% certainty of impact.
2: Please, don't say 100%. Can
0: so we just call it a potentially significant
3: event? Yeah.
5: Yes. But it isn't potentially going to happen. It is going to happen. Exactly, 99.78% to be exact. Oh, great. Okay, so it's not
0: 100%. Well, scientists never like to say 100%.
4: Call it 70% and let's just, let's move on.
0: Of course, the comet is an allegory for climate change. And no spoilers here, but we do want to talk about the film's message and what it represents for some frustrated climate scientists. Joining me now is one such scientist. Michael Mann is the Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Michael. Thank you, Steve. It's always good to be with you. So, Michael, this is a very dark film in one sense, but it's also intensely funny at times. How was the writer and director, Adam McKay, able to harness humor to talk about something as terrible as the climate crisis?
3: Well, I think that's the challenge, and I'm a big fan of Adam McKay and and his films. They're just hilarious. And uh, David Sirota also had a hand in helping write the story. And I think that they really pulled it off, right, which is to both communicate the gravity of the threat, the underlying threat that we're really talking about. Of course, it's a metaphor for the climate crisis, even though it's framed as a comet that's about to strike Earth. But to do it in a way that, first of all, creates some distance, because there is so much ideological baggage now that people come into the climate discussion with. And so if you talk about climate sort of straight up, you're going to sort of lose some of your audience. Uh, You're going to raise their hackles. You know, climate change denial has become ideological among some. And so if you make it about something completely different, but the undertones and the message really are sort of informing their understanding, hopefully, of the climate crisis, then maybe you can get some people to listen, to open up their ears. As I like to say, the front door is bolted shut you know, climate change denial is a firm sort of part of the ideology of the American right today. So the, the front door is closed. You can't just barge through with facts and figures. So you look for that side door. And, and I think humor and satire is that side door. And, that, and that's what they've done here.
0: Yeah, you know, part of the issue is how do you avoid getting onto that slippery slope of urgency into doomism? How did, how did this movie succeed in doing that?
3: Yeah, and you've hit on, you know, the the key point here, and this is a point that I I emphasize in my recent book, The New Climate War, is, you know, the importance of communicating both the urgency... But at the same time, the agency, the fact that it's not too late to do something about the problem. And, you know, there is the danger that some people will come away from the film with the wrong message. Because it's possible to come away from it and think, oh, wow, we're, we're doomed. That's really the message of this film. But that isn't the message if you sort of think more about how things unfold. And, and I don't want to sort of spoil the film for your listeners who haven't seen it yet. But suffice it to say that there was a path forward that was safe and reliable, and that's the path that wasn't taken, right? And so without giving it all away, if they had addressed this problem in the way that scientists said it needed to be addressed, then there was a real chance for for success, but instead, sort of they listen to the voices of tech billionaires, and that <laughs> led us down the wrong path and, <laughs> and that's I think that 's the critical message there we 're at a juncture there 's the right path forward, and there 's the wrong path forward and, and the movie shows us what happens with the wrong path
0: indeed, and the techno billionaire they have there what is this a send up of is it Elon Musk? am I looking <laughs> at Bill Gates? am I looking? Jeff Bezos is Mark Zuckerberg. Who am I looking at in this character? Yes,
3: yes, all of the above. (laughs) I think it's an amalgamation of all of those individuals, and you can literally see pieces of each of them in the character. Uh, the way that social media information that we provide is used for profiling and targeting us, that's in there. But to me, what was really significant was this idea that we can engineer our way out of the crisis. And to me, this was an extended metaphor or an allegory or whatever you want to talk about, uh, clearly for the climate crisis. And it was also communicating the dangers of sort of thinking that we can just invoke some techno fix down the road as a way of sort of denying the actions that we need to take right now while we still can.
0: I mean, they say that this comet could uh, make trillions of bucks for this guy and essentially saying that people in these positions of power think it's worth risking the entire planet to get it out and bring it to market, kind of like the fossil fuel reserves that are sitting around that must stay in the ground if this planet is to remain habitable,
3: huh? No, absolutely. This idea that we can continue to burn fossil fuels because look, we will just find a techno fix down the road. Trust us. (laughs) So, you know, we hear a lot about geoengineering and there are some scientists and even Bill Gates is actually financing research into these massive planetary interventions like shooting Sulfur dioxide particles into the stratosphere to block out some of the sunlight to try to cool the planet back down. And the more you look into these potential interventions scientifically, the more you realize there are all sorts of potential unintended consequences. That's one fundamental problem. But even more problematic, I would say, from the standpoint of the politics and the policy, it provides a convenient argument for delay. It's a crutch for polluters who want to say, hey, look, we can solve this problem down the road. So let's continue to burn fossil fuels and generate economic growth because we'll figure out how to solve this problem later. Trust us. But (laughs) even some of the other seemingly more moderate geoengineering approaches like massive carbon capture, where we sort of suck the carbon back out of the atmosphere, well, we're fighting the laws of, of thermodynamics and economics in trying to do that. It would be hugely expensive. It's unclear that it can be done at scale, but it's being used by some polluters, again, as this crutch. And we've got to cut our carbon emissions by 50% within this decade to avert catastrophic warming. We're not going to do that with New breakthrough technology. We can solve this problem using existing renewable energy. There are plenty of studies that demonstrate that the obstacles aren't technological at this point; they're entirely political. It's really that simple. All right, Michael. So, where, where do you think
0: this allegory breaks down? And, and in your view, how well does it does it work to get this message across? Do you think?
3: I think it works in the sense that it it's so distant from the climate crisis. That, like I said before, it doesn't come with that same ideological baggage. I would like to think we could all band together today, Republicans and Democrats alike, and agree that we need to do something about an imminent planet-killing comet, right? We would hopefully all, you know, band together. And the fact that we don't, that even with something as clear-cut as that, it devolves into politics and greed and And so all metaphors are imperfect by design. And, you know, this metaphor is imperfect in the sense that it's sort of a discrete event. We don't go off a cliff at three degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet. What we're doing instead is we're walking out onto this minefield. And the farther we walk out onto that minefield, the the more danger we encounter. So there's an imperfect translation of, you know, the, the metaphor to the climate crisis. At the same time, We can say that, you know, three degrees Fahrenheit warming is really bad. A lot of bad things will happen if we exceed that amount of warming. It's something we really want to try to avoid at all cost. So the binary nature of the disaster isn't a perfect parallel with the climate crisis. But the idea that there are thresholds that we need to avoid and we need to take action now to avoid them translates reasonably well, I think. So, Michael, I've got to ask you this. I mean, to what extent do you envy
0: the certainty that the scientists in this movie have about, you know, the discovery here is going to hit the planet in exactly six months and 14 days? Very convenient for them.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it's an exact prediction that can be tested by a single event, right? Whereas climate science is a much more complex sort of science in the sense that it isn't just a single event that we're trying to predict. It is a massive number of unfolding events and amplified events and sometimes subtle linkages between the warming of the planet and all the various impacts that that is leading to. It's not quite as direct and immediate and acute as, you know, a comet that's about to strike us. And yet, when it comes to the bottom line, there's a remarkable similarity. It's that ideology has been used to divide us and to favor an agenda of inaction that, in the case of the film, costs us the entire planet. But in the case of climate change, if we fail to rise to the challenge, it will cost us a livable planet. Indeed. And you know the funny
0: thing about the precision, though, back in the 1960s, ExxonMobil and those folks had a pretty good clue. By the 70s and 80s, their predictions are playing pretty much right out to where CO2 levels and temperatures
3: are these days. You're absolutely right, Steve. It's, it's, it is remarkable that, you know, when we talk about all the different impacts of climate change, that gets into subtleties and complexities. But if we just stand back and look at the big picture, the warming of the planet, it's actually exactly as was predicted a half century ago by none other than ExxonMobil, the world's largest publicly traded fossil fuel company. Their own scientists successfully predicted both the rise in carbon dioxide concentrations if we remained addicted to fossil fuels, the rise that we would see by now, and the warming that that would cause. And so, even as ExxonMobil's PR apparatus was attacking, Independent climate scientists and attacking climate science publicly, their own scientists (laughs) were delivering the same fairly precise message. Hey, by the
0: way, Michael, you have a connection to this film, huh? (laughs)
3: Yeah, it's sort of funny. So I I would have liked to have attended the premiere. I was uh, invited to attend it, but uh, the logistics of making it to New York City made that, uh, you know, in the era of COVID, made that really difficult. And my my daughter was was very disappointed because she was looking forward to uh, attending it with me in in New York City. So instead, uh, the Netflix folks were nice enough to send us a link so we could watch the film in, in advance in the comfort of our home. And so we're watching this film, and I don't know, maybe it's 30 minutes into it or so as we're meeting, you know, we're getting to know Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Dr. Mindy, the astronomer uh, who's, uh, you know, who's graduate student uh, really and he have discovered this comet. And Leo's, you know, mannerisms and just the way he speaks, my daughter said to me, I think he's basing this on you.
6: And I sort of (laughs) laughed
3: that off. I mean, I've gotten to know Leonardo DiCaprio uh, pretty well. I've, you know, corresponded with him on a number of occasions, helped advise him on some projects. And, you know, at some level, we've sort of become friends... But I didn't really – it didn't occur to me that that might be the case. I sort of laughed that off until I guess it was a couple weeks later. uh, There was an interview with Leo that aired and he name-checked me when he was talking (laughs) about sort of what inspired the, the character in the film. And I didn't know how to take that. Because if you watch the film, and again, I won't give it away, Leo's a flawed character. You know, in the end, you know, I would put him on the side of hero, but he's a flawed hero. And some of those flaws, I would hope, aren't commentaries on me specifically, especially the uh, marital infidelity. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, my wife sort of looked at me askance sconce as, as soon as, uh, you know, that connection was made. So, you know, I think what, what Leo was trying to embrace was the frustration that we climate scientists feel in trying to communicate this this threat to the public, but facing this massive headwind of misinformation and and sort of the way that the the media often doesn't really treat these issues with the seriousness and and the urgency that some might hope. Of course, living on Earth being the obvious exception to that.
0: (laughs) yeah I mean, I had to laugh out loud at some of those TV sequences because you know, network TV will frequently, yeah, if they brought on a serious scientist, maybe the next thing is you know, a dancing chimp or something. Right. They just <laughs> but and I do hope that the, that the character, Dr. Randall Mindy, wasn't entirely based on you. Because, you know, at one point he gets so frustrated with the lack of urgency that's being seen, he absolutely loses it and has a meltdown <laughs> on live television in this film. And, and and also the Jennifer Lawrence character has a similar situation. Yeah. I guess you've
3: probably never really melted down like that <laughs> on television. But, but how
0: close have you come?
3: Yeah, you know, I think he goes through this sort of rapid media training. They recognize he's going to be um, doing the media circuit, and so they sort of try to train him. But he goes off script at at one point and does have this meltdown. And uh, suffice it to say that I think all of us who are climate scientists but have also engaged in efforts to communicate the science at one time or another have experienced some of the same frustrations. But we've resisted at least uh, heretofore (laughs) Thus far, so far, it hasn't happened uh, to me, an on air meltdown. But I I thought that it was a clever way of just saying, look, people. we have to confront that this really is a crisis. We can't continue to tiptoe around it and, and treat it as if it's just part of the entertainment ecosystem. This isn't just about entertainment uh, in communication. It, it's about, you know, addressing the greatest threat that we as a civilization have addressed. And in the movie, it's a comet. In the real world, it's the climate crisis.
0: And uh, before you go, Michael, comment on the title of the film.
3: Don't look up. Well, you know, don't look up is what the inactivists, as I call them in the new climate war, the forces of inaction, polluters and those promoting their agenda, politicians and uh, front groups and conservative media outlets, they don't want us to look up something that's plainly evident. All we have to do is use our two eyes. And we would see it. Well, that's true with the climate crisis, isn't it? We're watching it play out in real time now in the form of these unprecedented extreme weather disasters. All we have to do is just look out uh, what's happening. And so I think that's the commentary. And of course, there's the movement that arises among the denialists in the film. Don't look up. Don't, you know, don't open your eyes. Pay no attention to these massive, costly weather disasters that are playing out now in real time. That's sort of what the forces of climate inaction are telling us.
0: Michael Mann is a Presidential Distinguished Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. His latest book is called Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
3: Thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure.
1: Just ahead, looking to nature for the secrets to living a long life. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.
6: If you're one of Living on Earth's listener supporters, or if you've been considering a donation to LOE, this message is for you. As a nonprofit news organization, listener support is vital to LOE's weekly effort to bring you up-to-date environmental news and information. Your gift to LOE makes a difference and makes our work possible. So thank you.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
6: And I'm Paloma
1: Beltran. The average human lifespan has increased dramatically with modern medicine and improved nutrition. But in nature, some animals live far longer than humans. And some don't appear to age at all, like the jellyfish Turritopsis dorni that can continually revert back to a juvenile stage. In his book, Jellyfish Age Backwards, Nature's Secret to Longevity, Nicholas Brenborg explains what we can learn from animals about aging and how humans can live longer. He starts by explaining the title of his book.
2: My book title refers to a type of jellyfish called Turritopsis which is this tiny jellyfish around the size of a fingernail, it has the ability to actually rejuvenate itself. So what actually happens is that you stress it somehow, for instance, by increasing the temperature in the water, or increasing the salinity, or maybe uh, starving the jellyfish a little, and then it can go from what is called the adult stage, so the stage that we know it from, back to something called the polyp stage. That would be an egg into a butterfly turning back into a caterpillar. Then from there, the jellyfish can grow up anew, And then you can just go around in this cycle again and again and again. Of course, this jellyfish doesn't live forever out in in nature where it lives in this big, big ocean. Here it's going to get eaten by something eventually. But at least in the laboratory, no one has actually found a limit to how much you can make this jellyfish rejuvenate itself. So it's quite possible that as long as it had scientists to take care of it, you could actually make it live forever. So in principle, you can say it's an example of the holy grail of aging research. So that is an animal that can practically live forever, at least under human protection.
1: So why does a human body age? We tend to think of aging as sort of this bad thing. But as you know, in your book, biology all makes sense in the light of evolution. So does nature have a good reason?
2: Yeah, so that's uh, what you could call maybe the million dollar question. Why do we age? For most organisms, it makes more sense to focus more on reproducing right now instead of, you know, having perfect upkeep of the body sometime in the future. So you can imagine if you are a mouse, even if you had like immortality, you wouldn't live forever because you would get eaten by something anyways. So then it makes more sense to take the limited resources you have, put them into just having as many offspring as possible so that you get descendants. Then, of course, that would predict that an animal like humans who who have a lot fewer predators and and a lower risk of death from other causes as well, that we would have evolved longer lifespans. And that's what we see. But yeah, at this point, we know some of the stuff that goes wrong. But why this stuff goes wrong in the first place is still like an open question.
1: And you write about various organisms that don't age like humans. Can you describe some of the studies in your book involving animals?
2: Yes. So the exciting thing about animal research when it comes to aging is that that's really the way where we can get a feel for what's possible by looking out into nature. For instance, many humans live maybe between 70 and and 90 years But uh, if we look out into nature, you can find uh, another mammal, the bowhead whale, which lives more than 200 years. You can find one of its neighbors, actually, the Greenland shark, which can live around 400 years. And we even also know animals like lobsters that don't age physically, and then animals like this jellyfish that my book is named after, uh, turritopsis, which can rejuvenate itself so age backwards.
1: Does this mean that it's not necessary that humans age? Is there a reason to believe that we can learn how to combine abilities that stop other organisms from suffering from aging and maybe use that for humans?
2: We might describe aging as some sort of almost physical law where you just take a quick look and say, well, you know, we do see a lot of the same changes in an old mouse or an old dog or an old person, but it just, first of all, happens at wildly different speeds, so A mouse that's two or three years old will have, like, gray hair. It has lost muscle mass and bone mass. And it's, you know, just gotten kind of slow, like people also uh, get when we get old. But it just happens in a time span when a human is still an infant. And then if you look at humans, well, the time point where all of this stuff happens to us, a bowhead whale would still be young or a Greenland shark would still be young and so on. So at least we can say that there might be a limit somewhere for how long a complex organism can live but humans are just nowhere near it. So it seems that there's actually quite a lot more potential. And then we have these few species that then also suggest that, well, maybe it's possible to have a biological organism that doesn't age at all. So like the next step over.
1: Tell us about the idea of hormesis and how it can be seen in our lifestyle and our diet and and in our surroundings.
2: Hormesis is one of these uh, phenomena that we have then uncovered, you could say, by studying a lot of different ways to prolong life. Throughout time, researchers have just noticed that a lot of these life-extending treatments, they tend to have something in common, and that is that they're actually kind of bad for you. So researchers have, for instance, used radiation like small doses of radiation to extend the life of mice, they've used uh, different kinds of toxin to extend the life of laboratory worms, and that's of course not because that these things are actually beneficial. It's because they are a stress factor to the body. So of course, if you take a get a high dose of radiation, you get cancer and you die early, and if you get a high dose of toxins, you also die. But at a low level the way this works is basically that the stress factor will turn on different processes in the body associated with repair and like bodily upkeep to combat this stressor. And this can actually help then make you stronger in the long run. So Homesis could be understood as like the scientific version of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And the best way to really understand it, like from, from your own experience is this is basically what happens when you do exercise. So exercise is really, really good if you want to live a long life, if you want to be healthy in general. I think most people know that, but most people don't really know what it is about exercise that is so healthy. Like you might think that it's while you're out for a run that you're really benefiting yourself. But if you think about what happens while you're out for a run, like you get a high pulse, uh, you get a high blood pressure, your muscles and bones get damaged, your lungs are stressed, none of those things are healthy, like in isolation. So, most of your organ systems are actually stressed or taking damage. And that's, of course, also why you are, your brain is trying to make you stop and telling you to uh, <laughs> to just, you know, uh, start walking and go home. That's because you are damaging yourself. But the magic really happens when you then stop running because then the body sees all of this damage and it basically interprets this as kind of signal that says, like, you need to get stronger. So it starts all these processes, as I said, involved in... Repair, in upkeep, in strengthening. So that next time you go for a run, then you have stronger muscles than before and a stronger heart and stronger bones and stronger lungs.
1: Yeah, so, so not all stress is bad.
2: Not all stress is bad. It's about the dose.
1: And what about food? So we all know that eating more plant foods is good for us, having a green, rich diet. But that has to do a little bit also with hormesis, as you point out in your book, how does that work?
2: So there's all these fun studies coming out that you probably encountered where you, for instance, hear that the healthy part of blueberries is this one compound or the healthy part of grapes is this other compound. And, you know, that might very well be true that some of the health benefits come from these compounds. But a lot of the times, if you track what happens, if you if you give them to humans, they actually tend to, you know, go to the liver. The liver is involved in detoxification that's why alcohol goes there but like really any like drug will go there as well anything that the body needs to like make safe and then clear out of the body so a lot of these compounds do seem to be slightly toxic actually Mm. so both that they go to the liver they can also be harmful in, in high doses and also from like a theoretical perspective we know that Just like you and I don't want to get eaten by something, that's actually the same thing for plants. They don't want to, you know, become dinner either. But we have all these abilities to run away or fight and hide maybe. A plant is just sitting there so it can't do any of these things. So the way plants solve this problem is basically chemical warfare. So there's just an insane amount of plants that are toxic in some way or the other So a lot of plants we would get like really sick or maybe even die from it. But even the plants that we do eat actually also tend to have various toxins, maybe to protect against osper, maybe to protect against insects or other animals that could eat them. So then when we know this theory of homasis that could explain why, even if they are a little toxic, why is it so healthy to eat all of these plants? Well, we get the same response where it's a slight stress response that then... Sits in motion, all these bodily upkeep functions, and then we end up stronger than if we exclude these, you know, low-level toxins.
1: Fascinating, and it's not just about subjecting ourselves to mild damage in order to grow back stronger. Something else you point out in your book is dental floss, and yes, many of us are not regular with flossing. Why do you find that dental floss and flossing is so beneficial?
2: Yeah, so I have a a chapter called Flossing for Longevity, and uh, it is basically because the human body is not sterile uh, in the sense that uh, it's not free of uh, bacteria, viruses, uh, fungi, and so on. It's actually teeming with all these microorganisms. And most of these microorganisms are neutral. They don't really affect us that much. They've found a, a nice, warm place to live, where there's abundant food, and then they just take care of themselves. Then we have some that help us, for instance, in the gut, or they help with our immune system. But then we also have some that are harmful. And for some reason, a lot of the ones that get identified as harmful, they tend to, you know, originate in the mouth. So there's a certain bacteria in the mouth that keeps popping up inside the brains of people who died from Alzheimer's dementia, but not in the brains of people who died from other causes, It keeps popping up inside the clot that forms when you have, say, a heart attack or a stroke. Then there's another bacteria from the mouth that keeps popping up in colon cancer and cancer of the pancreas. So there are these bacteria that, you know, we find these weird places where they don't belong in connection with disease. Then we also know there's this infectious condition in the mouth called a periodontosis, where... You kind of have a bacterial growth out of control and this condition also increases the risk of all these different diseases. So I'm not saying that these bacteria are like the ultimate cause of these diseases, but it is very likely that they at least contribute to the diseases. But luckily it's very easy to avoid because bacteria have a simple way of life. They just take food and convert it into more bacteria. So if you want to lessen like your bacterial burden in the mouth, You can have less food stuck, for instance, between your teeth, and then they have less to eat, and you decrease your risk of, say, getting periodontosis, or just in general having these bacteria grow out of control. So the chapter is called Flossing for Longevity. It, of course, also encompasses brushing your teeth, just generally keeping your mouth healthy, I guess would be the advice. And then you can, in like two minutes a day, really decrease your risk of all these uh, different diseases.
1: Yeah, better safe than sorry, right, in terms of bacteria in your mouth.
2: Exactly. And you know, most health advice is like really hard to follow. Say you have to exercise, you have to eat really healthy and all that stuff. So I'm I'm of course also always on the lookout of these things that are just simple, easy to do and will benefit you because we of course all want to all the required amount of exercise and never eat, you know, stuff that we shouldn't or drink too much alcohol and so on. But it's just extra beneficial when we can find these small little things that can make a big difference.
1: Yeah. What are other examples of maybe small little things like flossing your teeth that can make a difference in your health and longevity?
2: I think, of course, we just quickly have to mention, you know, don't smoke. That's like Mm -hmm. the number one. If you are someone who is smoking and you only do one thing, just stop smoking and it doesn't even matter what age you are. We can see that uh, even people who are in like, their 70s and they stop smoking, you're not going to return to baseline, but you're at least going to you know, increase your chance of you know, getting more good years by stopping at any point. But besides that, I think there's, it's also very important to have a look on the like, mental aspect of this because we, we know a lot about how influential our brain is to our physical health we can actually see that one of the factors that's most tightly associated with an early death is loneliness. So people that are lonely tend to have a high risk of, of many kinds of diseases and also to die earlier. Also, people who have uh, depression tend to have an increase in their brain aging, so their brain ages faster. And in general, if you ask these anthropologists that go to some of these long-lived communities and you know interview them and try to work out what's so different. They always come back and say that these are people that are extremely, first of all, optimistic and tend to be kind of worry-free. And then they also tend to be very deeply committed to their community. So they have very strong social ties and they have these strong feelings of meaning in their life, which doesn't have to be some crazy thing that they have a mission to earn a crazy amount of money or go all around the world. But it's mostly just like maybe they have a couple of grandkids and Their mission is to help these kids thrive or to make sure their community is doing well. or They're just always very, very sure of the fact that their life has a purpose. So there are these, you know, hard to tease out ways that your mental health definitely affects your physical health.
1: Yeah. And of course, one of the conclusions that you point out in the book is that people are different from each other. Literally, what our bodies are made of and how we are programmed at the genetic level. That gives us different experiences with the same pathogens or treatments. For example, some people can digest milk while others can get diarrhea. Yes. So how do we approach finding what's right for us if we can't necessarily listen to general statements about what we do or what we put in our bodies?
2: I mean, imagine if you're trying to figure out, is milk healthy or not? And then you have some of the study subjects in there, like, oh, yeah, I love my milk. And, you know, you can see it helps them grow taller and all these uh, health benefits. And then other people just feel sick every time they get it and just, you know, really benefit from removing it. And also, when you look at studies of uh, big effects, they say, oh, you know, if you eat spinach or something, your muscles will grow at 20%. Well, if you look at then the different participant in that study some of them might have 50% muscle growth some of them might even have lost muscle that's because you know people are not the same so at the end of the day of course all these studies is the best way to get inspiration but you have to also you know apply it on yourself and then measure whether it works as it's supposed to do or whether your body is just different for a reason we're going to find the same thing uh, later on as we dive deeper into genetics that of course sometimes if there's a dispute about what diet makes people feel better well both camps are actually right because their bodies are just not the same. So we're already moving into this point of, uh, you know, personalized medicine where you, you, for instance, sequence the genome of a person and that will be different for all of us. And then try to look, are there any things that you should be especially cautious about? So, Are you uh, likely to more quickly get like high cholesterol, so you have a higher risk of a heart attack, for instance? Have you got an increased risk of getting dementia and and all these things? So then you can maybe customize your health goals after that so that, you know, you hit the areas that are most likely to benefit you in particular.
1: Niklas Bremborg is the author of Jellyfish Age Backwards, Nature's Secret to Longevity. Thank you for joining us, Niklas.
0: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Josh Kroom, Jenny Doring, Swayam Gagneja, Madison Goldberg, Mark Kausch, Mark Seth Lander, Don Lyman, Sarah Mahaney, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandolitis, Claire Shanahan, Jake Rigo, El Wilson, and Yolanda Omari.
1: Tom Tiger and our Show. Alice and Lurish Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org. Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram, at Living on Earth Radio. And you can write to us at comments at LOE.org. I'm Paloma
5: Beltran.
0: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.